welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I'm here with Robert West. He's the Professor of Health Psychology at UCL. Um, and you gave a really interesting talk yesterday, Robert, where you were, you were saying that we focus our efforts on preventing tobacco uptake and kind of promoting smoking cessation. But this is, you know, maybe wrong and that we need to actually focus on promoting tobacco and nicotine harm reduction. Well, so why is that? <laughs> well, let me say, first of all, that... Um, I wouldn't characterise it like that because preventing uptake and promoting uh, tobacco cessation remain absolutely at the core of policies. And what I am saying is that uh, in uh, in some jurisdictions, uh, perhaps not all, uh, for reasons that I could go in, well, I will go into in a minute, in a minute. Um, then there's an additional approach, which is what we're calling tobacco harm reduction, which, of course, in other areas of um, uh, drug use and so on, has become pretty much established. And the principle behind harm reduction is a very simple one. It's that you recognise that uh, continued use of the most harmful form of nicotine intake that uh, anyone has ever been able to think of, which is the cigarette, um, is an urgent problem that needs addressing on a literally daily basis because for someone who's over the age of 35, every day that they continue to smoke a cigarette will take off around four to six hours of their life. And so we can continue to make progress in cessation and preventing uptake, and we are, uh, but for those people who are still smoking, we also should be looking at how they can get their nicotine in a way that is less harmful. That's the basic principle. And it seems pretty uncontentious to me. <laughs> the, the contentiousness arises uh, from partly, to be honest, uh, from, I think, a sort of puritanical view that, well, they shouldn't be using nicotine anyway. Uh, and a sort of black and white thinking that we're all subject to, which is, you know, if it's bad, it's bad, and if it's good, it's good. S smoking and nicotine intake are bad, and therefore it should stop. And obviously, when you're dealing in public health, you're dealing in quantities. And so a major part of what I was saying in my talk was that we need to get away from black and white thinking and get into quantitative estimation of harm. And when you're thinking about a policy for tobacco control, you should be thinking about uh, how you can estimate that harm. And there are three factors that come into play. One is how many people are using a particular tobacco product, like a cigarette? How many people in your population? Is it 5 million, 6 million, whatever? And then for each person, what's the average duration of use? Because duration will also contribute to harm. And then the third thing that gets put into the equation is uh, how harmful is that particular product? And you do this for all the products that they could be using. And you also then do this for the non-users, and people forget about the non-users very often. You know, we, we, in countries like the UK, we've come to think of passive exposure to uh, tobacco smoke as a thing of the past, and it largely is. But that's not true in many parts of the world, where passive exposure to tobacco smoke is very, very much a thing that's ongoing and is killing, literally killing, tens of thousands of people. So we have to take that into account. So the harm equation, which is the thing that I was going on about, is, is a very simple equation. It looks a bit complicated, um, but it's a very simple one, which is that the total harm in a population is the sum of the harm to users of tobacco products and non-users. And for each of those, it's the, uh, it's the sum 
of the harm from each product, which is given by the number of users, duration of use, and toxicity of that product. And so if, once, you, once you start thinking about that, you think, well, okay, what if we have a policy which switches, for example, a million cigarette smokers to snus, which is uh, a form of uh, Swedish uh, oral tobacco, which is low in nitrosamines and has a very, very low mortality risk attached to it. What if we do that? What does that look like? And you go, well, hang on a minute. You know, under any, any re- reasonable assumption, it's going to reduce harm from, uh, uh, from tobacco, total harm, by some margin. And that's evidenced by the, uh, the tobacco-related uh, death rate in, in Sweden, which is the lowest in Europe, by far. Um, and so, so you estimate, you don't guess, and you, talk, and you think quantitatively rather than in black and white. This tobacco harm equation that you've developed, if there's policy makers or commissioners or public health specialists listening to this, what, what format does this come in? Is this something that they can just pick up and use? Yeah, it really is. And it comes with a little manual, which is literally one slide, because it's really easy. Uh, so the, the basic principle is really easy. It's just a, it's just a simple linear equation. Uh, yeah, it's just some sums and multiplications. The difficult bit, interestingly, of course, is coming up with your estimates of... Uh, you could usually do the estimates of, of exposure, which is numbers using. Uh, you can usually do estimates of duration. It's what's the estimates of harm. Um, and that's where... It's, that's OK. We don't know, necessarily. If you've got a new thing coming on the market like e-cigarettes, uh, you say, well, we don't really know the harm, but you can make a very good uh, estimate of it based on the toxins that are present in the vapour and of course you do sensitivity analysis, you go okay what's the worst case scenario and you look at that and what's the best case scenario and you look at that and when you do that sometimes you get surprising results and so if you're a country uh, in Europe Portugal, Spain, Italy uh, or outside Europe, the Philippines um, who are interested in this, um, you say okay this is this is the way in which we're going to work out how to treat our, all the policy uh, initiatives that we might uh, put in place. Like, for example, uh, should we put the price of e-cigarettes up? Should we ban e-cigarettes? Should we? Uh, I know the Europeans are not going to do this, but it's 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 a bit odd. Um, should we allow snus to be sold? Uh, so, uh, but you can you can say whatever reason you might have for engaging in a particular policy, if harm is what you're interested in, this is how to calculate it. I'm also interested in what you think about closing the gap, because we're here at this amazing Lisbon Addictions Conference, we're hearing about all this amazing new research, but we know actually that it's going to take a decade or more for this stuff to actually get into frontline practice. You're the editor of the Addiction Journal. What do you think we need to do to get really good quality evidence to people at the front line? 
We definitely need to do it better. And of course, we're not alone in that. That's true in all areas of science and technology and, and particularly health. Um, uh, but now we can start to use technology uh, to do this a lot better. And I'm involved in a project relating to human behavior called the Human Behavior Change Project, which is an, uh, to build an artificial intelligence and machine learning system to trawl the world literature on behavior change interventions, which of course includes addiction-related interventions, um, to automatically read those papers, extract the information, and then use machine learning, a rather clever form of machine learning, to ask answer questions. So you, as a member of the public or a policymaker or a, a clinician, could say, right, I need uh, to get this, per this person, let's, you know, let's take it right down to the level of the individual. I've got this person sitting in front of me. They're a 54-year-old male with this, this, and this, and this, and they're living in this, this, and this, and, I've, and I want to get them to, let's say, stop smoking or, uh, or stop uh, using heroin, whatever it might be. Um, what's your recommendation? It goes, it's on chanter through the system and it comes up with an answer. So it's like, um, uh, ask Jeeves, if you will. It's like a souped up Google um, based on science and machine learning to answer specific questions. This is a, this is a very ambitious project, um, but we can already see how this kind of uh, a, a digital online platform can be used by policymakers literally in real time to, to access the knowledge base that, occur, that exists. And what do you think the barriers are? Because I work a lot with you know, frontline mental health nurses or social workers or people who don't use evidence in their day-to-day -day practice and they haven't necessarily been trained in how to look at research and use it in practice. What do you think the barriers are to getting those sorts of people using these kinds of machine learning systems in their day-to-day -day practice? I think they're the same barriers as existed in getting people to use computers uh, back in the day when you had to program it or you had to speak its language rather than it speaking your language. And now, obviously, if you walk up and down the streets and on, on, the, on the metro and so on, people are sitting there with their incredibly powerful handheld computer interacting with it all the time. You can't stop them. You might say they're addicted. But um, So it's about the user interface. It's about making this stuff accessible. And what's happened is that we haven't suddenly taught all these members of the public to program and to interact with a complex system. We have moved the system to them, and I think that's the way to do it. So uh, actually, at a meeting of the Addiction Regional Editors just before the Lisbon Conference, uh, uh, I, I, I was thinking that we could do a sort of version of the Human Behaviour Change Project for addictions, which might be something like Ask Addiction. And it's, it would be a curated knowledge base uh, that anyone could access. What's the best treatment for this? What's the prognosis for this? What are the, what are the risks of this? What are the side effects of this? And you, just, you just ask it. And of course you could do that already with Google. It's just that uh, it would say, this is what I found. Or, or uh, it would point in the direction of a website. And it wouldn't necessarily be accurate. So, so yeah, I think that we... I think that we can do uh, a lot better and I'm sure it will happen soon. I'm interested in what you think about the power sitting with the consumer. So for me, I have type 1 diabetes, I go to my GP and I, I go armed with evidence and I say, you know, I'm demanding being prescribed this new flash monitoring system because, you know, it's, it's now on the NHS, there's good evidence that it will help me control my blood sugar. Now for people with addiction, um, do they have that same amount of um, ability 
um, are they not kind of removed from society and stigmatized more than anybody else within the kind of mental health spectrum? I'm interested in how the people with addiction can become in control enough to be able to um, influence those sorts of decisions. That's a really, really good question, really good point. And I think um, my immediate thoughts on it, uh, which I may change, <laughs> you know, on further reflection, but my immediate thoughts are one is that a lot of people who suffer from addiction uh, actually are not... Uh, disempowered people, they're, they're, they're just people and they just happen to suffer from addiction. To that extent, they form part of the, uh, uh, of the sort of stakeholder group that politicians listen to because they vote and they go on marches and they do other things to, uh, to try and get their voice heard. Um, but then, of course, you've got the group that have thoroughly disempowered and stigmatised. And um, I, I think my, my initial reaction is that this is something that we need to deal with as a society and it's not something necessarily that uh, we can um, it is a technological issue, it's more of a cultural and social issue about how we treat people um, who are stigmatised because of uh, all sorts of things including their addiction and their mental health and so on uh, and, and I think that is changing I, I, I don't know what, what you think but I think that in, well, at least in certain countries it's changing but we've got an awful long way to go um, it does occur to me, though, as I'm, th as I'm talking, to reflect on the fact that um, probably most of us in any walk of life know someone who's got a serious problem with addiction, even if we don't have one ourselves. And when we know someone who's got a serious problem with addiction, we understand it better. We, f we, we feel empathy because they're our brother, our sister, you know, and uh, uh, so... I think that finding a way of using technology to bring out that empathy because you're creating, you're bringing it into the open so that it's recognising that this is, this is all among us. You know, the, the people with serious addiction problems are in our midst and are part of our society. And the, you know, this, this idea, oh, well, we should all take responsibility for our actions, which uh, is, is, to be quite honest, a bit of a... Uh, I, even the people who propose it don't really believe it because they'll make allowances for themselves any time they need to. Uh, but uh, that kind of narrative then can become, you know, you can, you can deal with it because, you're, uh, because the people who you're, um, you're trying to apply it to are your family and your friends and so on. And that's recognised. It's out there in the open. Mm -hmm.